0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American
1: Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. You know, I checked the weather radar this morning and across much of the central part of the United States, we've got folks listening to the sound of rain. I was watching on social media this morning. Lots of folks very grateful to hear that sound after quite some time. Whether or not it does any good long-term remains to be seen. We'll be talking weather a little bit later on today's program with Jim Romer of Best Weather, Inc. Before we do that, though, we're going to dig into some of the stories that are unfolding in the ethanol market with our friend Todd Neely from DTN, and Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services is going to join us with a look into what's developing here in the protein markets as we work into fall. At the end of the show, we're going to talk with Jeff Cooper, the CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. There are some moves potentially being made by the EPA to allow limited E15 sales next year. We'll get Jeff's thoughts on that here at the end of the show. Let's dive in to the market discussion today. Kicking it off here in the livestock market. Joining us for that discussion is Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. And Dennis, we're seeing a little red on the screen today here for livestock. What's your take as we round out this week?
2: Yeah. Good morning, Mike. Well, I think the cattle market uh, currently lower. Well probably soon turn higher Uh, this Chinese story is is intriguing and what I call Mike the the China stocks or the the China commodities copper cotton crude oil and soybeans those commodities are all uh, uh, sensitive you might say to the Chinese economy And uh, those are all sharply higher today, okay? Copper breaking out to the upside. Cotton's been on a move all week long. And uh, crude oil's up uh, $4, and and the soybeans are up nice. So this is an impact in the livestock market in that uh, it impacts cattle more so than hogs right now because the Chinese are actively buyers of U.S. beef right now. They're currently not uh, active in the pork market although i think there's a real good chance uh, so sometime early next year they will get involved in buying uh, u.s pork muscle cuts
1: dennis you mentioned something that's been floating around on the internet it's been floating around to chinese media for the better part of a week the idea that china might start to shrug off their zero COVID policy at least in some regards the fact that the trade is starting to bid up these china sensitive commodities that you mentioned does this give confirmation to the idea that China might be coming back into the global market?
2: I, well, I think so. I, I think there's it's more than just a rumor. I think the Chinese have a, a lot of problems, and and a, a, a faltering economy is is one of the the forefront of the problems, along with the COVID situation. Uh, I I think there's a lot to it. Uh, 200 million people are under some form of lockdown right now across 28 cities. And if they begin to open that up, uh, that's a lot of uh, pent-up demand that that could really uh, come to the marketplace eventually. Uh, I believe there is something to it, uh, and uh, markets seem to be sensing the same thing.
1: All right, we'll continue to watch there. Getting them back in as a large global player would certainly be an upside push here to these markets. But, Dennis, I'm thinking domestically on the cattle front. We had some jobs data out this morning, kind of a mixed bag of economic data. What's your take on how the domestic beef consumer is going to react here moving into winter?
2: Well, uh, we're still creating jobs, uh, as uh, from what I understand on that report. Uh, That's a positive. Unemployment rate remains very low. Now, the Federal Reserve, of course, is in the process of slamming on the brakes on the U.S. economy. That is a bit concerning uh, longer term. But uh, these interest rate hikes will take a while to, to have their impact on the U.S. economy. So, say, for the next three to six months, I have to be real bullish uh, as the U.S. consumer is working and, uh, and you might say when everybody's working, everybody wants to eat high on the hog.
1: They sure do. And when they're eating high on the hog, of course, I imagine folks are going to choose that choice cut, they'll choose, choose that chime cut. Dennis, what are you seeing with regard to the choice select spread here in the beef market at the wholesale level?
2: That, that spread continues to hover uh, above $30, currently around $32. And, Mike, that is a record high on that choice select spread for this time of year, or say early November. So the grading continues to, to underperform, so to speak, with uh, choice grade and prime beef and very tight supply. That's a, a good thing for packer processing margins. Packers have been very aggressive. They've been killing a lot of cattle. The industry's current, and we look for numbers to begin to taper off uh, sooner rather than later.
1: Dennis, wild card question for you: We've heard on the poultry side the impact of HPAI, particularly in the turkey sector, with that driving up the cost of birds. Could this Thanksgiving be a year that more consumers turn to prime rib, or perhaps a pork loin, and maybe drive some more value that way?
2: I'm not sure if that'll happen on those two cuts. It's definitely, I think, supported the ham market to date. Now, most of that holiday business is probably just about finished up by now. But but Mike, I do believe that the, the, the very high turkey prices have been a supportive feature to the ham market for sure.
1: Interesting. I certainly see consumers making that decision when they're looking at the meat case there at the grocery store. Dennis, we've got cash cattle trade. It looks like it's going to be over 150 this week. Where do you see us moving on the cash side here as we wrap up harvest across the Corn Belt and get into a little bit more winter?
2: Well, I look for the wholesale beef market to continue to, to put out new highs. So the the choice beef is uh, at a new recent high on yesterday's quote which is just above 265. I look for this trend to continue for probably several more weeks. You might say maybe for the rest of the year, now that we're in the first week of November. Cash steer market is bound to continue to grind higher. I'm not sure how high we can go by the end of the year. Uh, Call it a 150 market in the southern plains right now. Maybe you can get up to the 152, 153 Uh, I'm not sure we would be much higher than that uh, by the end of the year.
1: All right, Dennis. And with uh, a little bit of weakness today in the feeder cattle market, but that strength has been there. That trend has certainly been upwards. What are you watching for potential tops here in the feeder cattle
2: side? Uh, I, I, I have no idea where the top is, but I would not want to try to pick a top in this market right now. Uh, elevated corn prices have been a problem for the feeders there's no doubt about that so uh, I'm not sure uh, if we're going to see a sharp weakness in the corn market I don't think we're going to see a big surge higher in corn prices but uh, maybe we're not uh, going to see a big drop in corn prices either but if you look at the feeders August feeders are at $200 but Mike you want to look at uh, the October 24 live cattle contract, which just, just came on the board earlier this week, and that contract is trading about 168 So that's a tremendous uh, appreciation in cattle prices over the next uh, uh, 12 to 16 months.
1: It is. That is quite a disparity right there. Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services, thanks for joining us today. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA after this.
0: agriculture of america is brought to you by Senex premium diesel diesel that doesn't mess around
1: this is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits because something like that could only come from a lab right but this is where Allegiant seed by chs comes from it's made by farmers for farmers Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here
3: in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com.
1: With harvest wrapping up, Channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of Channel's product performance this year. Don, Channel products in the field, how'd they do?
4: Well, because the farmers have faced a variety of conditions across the region this season, you know, some growers were able to get in the field early, others experienced a delayed planting season, and of course, throughout the season, moisture was either abundant, fair, or scarce, but despite these various conditions, um, channel corn and soybean products have performed very well. From the high-yielding acre to the stressed acre with limited rainfall, we have been very pleased with our solid performance. We have a very exciting lineup, and we've got great genetics and great breeding to, to back that up.
1: That was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers
1: and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, there has been a flurry of activity recently in the ethanol industry. We're gearing up for November 16th. That is the due date for the EPA to get their proposed renewable volume obligations out there, the requirements for the blending industry to blend biofuels. And as that deadline gets closer, ethanol advocates and others are trying to put a little pressure on the EPA. Joining me, is Todd Neely. He's a DTN staff reporter. He has been covering these back and forths here at the legislative level for some time. He joins us this morning. Todd, thanks for talking to us today.
6: Yeah, good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: Let's talk first about the ethanol industry's push here. They're really waiting for these RVOs and they're watching those small refinery exemptions. Todd, what have they been pushing for
6: recently? Well, you know, Mike, I think it's something that the ethanol industry has been clear for, for many years. You know, we started back in the Trump administration uh, 2016 and onward um, talking about small refinery exemptions. And, you know, the Trump administration had put out uh, had actually approved, I think, 88 exemptions in its four years. Um, and that was just an ongoing battle between the industry and the administration at that time uh, about that program. And, and, you know, they were looking for all kinds of all kinds of information. You know, they wanted to know what was going on at EPA, what, you know, why now and, and all that. And so this has a bit of a history. And I think uh, this is something that, um, you know, the ethanol industry has been quite in, quite content in, in going after the Biden administration as well and making sure that, uh, you know, as they look at small refinery exemptions that, um, you know, they, that it becomes more of a program that's narrowly more narrow uh, in, in use uh, and that people, you know, refiners that need those exemptions actually get them, you know, which I think the industry itself has, has been quite clear that, you know, there might be some who, who need those. But um, I do think that the ethanol industry is, this is a subject and a, and a very hot subject that's probably never going to go away. And when you look at the upcoming reset of the RFS, uh, you know, and a lot of questions and doubts about what that's going to look like, I think, um, You know, the the SRE situation is going to be uh, right at the front of of, uh, their concerns.
1: And all of this has flared back up because, as you mentioned, the Trump administration issued a lot of these. And then the Biden EPA has said, we're going to roll these back. But now, Todd, I understand there's maybe some pushback from the government itself about the rollbacks on these small refinery exemptions. How has the EPA been deciding which refiners qualify?
6: Well, you know, Mike, I think that's something that's, that's still highly contested. I, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, we have a, a real clear picture of what EPA has looked at. Um, you know, there, there's a process that's been set up between the EPA and the department of energy when these, uh, when these petition requests come in on how to, how to uh, evaluate them and determine which ones may or may not, uh, apply, you know, comply. And I think the one thing that, um, you know, as we look down the road here, I mean we're seeing now pressure from uh, the Government Accountability Office, which put out a report on Thursday uh, talking about the other side of this and that um, you know it's highly critical of whether the EPA uh, actually knows for sure whether small refiners uh, are suffering disproportionate economic hardship. And one of the things that's come out is uh, you know GAO put out their support at the request of, of federal lawmakers looking at, uh, the SRE program. And one of the things that's always been in front and center is this idea that refiners can pass on the cost, uh, to comply with the RFS, um, in the price of gasoline and diesel and that sort of thing. And, uh, this GAO report yesterday, uh, kind of questions whether that's really true, you know, although they don't really have any, uh, you know, definitive study on their own to, to say one way or the other. And so they're, They're trying to compel EPA and the Department of Energy to look more closely at this and how they evaluate them and uh, whether it's actually being done uh, with accurate and fair information.
1: And so, Todd, when we get these issues that percolate up, and then, of course, they've got the deadline here of that November 16th, how does this generally go? If the GAO is calling the EPA's process into question, I've got to imagine this is going to be an issue that, that
6: drags out for the foreseeable future. Well, it's interesting, Mike, as part of, part of some of the rules that EPA has put out, uh, some of the pro- proposals on the RFS in, in recent months, uh, one of those things has, has dealt with, um, you know, changing the SRE program and, and how they decide on waivers. Um, you know, this report, uh, you know, while it's not, you know, it, it doesn't really have a force of law or anything like that. Uh, in, the, in the Washington, D.C. circles, it really has raised the hackles of the ethanol industry and, uh, you know, supporters in Congress as well about what GAO had found. Um, and so I think, if anything, you know, it's probably going to put some pressure on policymakers in BC. In particular, perhaps EPA will, will take a closer look at these, although we've seen under the Biden administration that they're less inclined to, to give uh, small refinery exemptions. And that's kind of the overall stated policy of the administration to this point.
1: All right, lots to continue to consider there in the ethanol industry. We'll have to watch and see what happens as that November 16th due date gets closer here for the EPA. Todd, while we've got you, you cover not just environmental issues, but you also cover a lot of the legal issues that confront agriculture. And I'm curious about a story you've been reporting on for the past several weeks. And this is a lawsuit coming from a collection of environmental groups, Waterkeeper Alliance, Sierra Club, American Rivers, EWG, etc., looking to make sure that CAFOs, are qualifying for NPDS permits or NPDS permits, Todd? What's happening here, and, and what are these environmental groups pushing for?
6: Yeah, Mike. Uh, you know, CAFOs have been a center of attention when it comes to the environmental community for many years, and um, I think one of the things that came about and this petition that was filed at the end of October uh, with the EPA um, is that these these interest groups they want to see uh, EPA really take. A closer look at KFOs and in particular they want uh, they want KFOs that use what are called wet manure management systems um, they want those uh, those KFOs to be required to get federal permits um, right now uh, as the way things go we uh, you know the states are, the states are really the ones that really watch over the KFOs and, and the regulatory side of things primarily um, and so I think this particular petition that was filed, wants to kind of shake that up. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about, um, you know, discharge from CAFOs and that sort of thing. Um, on the industry side of things, you know, they, they look at this and they say it's just another attack by environmentalists. Um, and that they have been doing quite a lot of work in reducing discharge from, from CAFOs over the years. And so again, this is one of those, this one of those issues that really has been out there over the years. And, uh, you know, it's really not all that surprising to see more action coming from environmentals on this, and especially at a time when, um, you know, EPA is at a point where it's doing a lot of different things in terms of looking at an endangered species and, and all these things. There's some things changing in the agency um, that I think maybe environmentalists look at this issue and say, hey, what about us?
1: That's a good point. This is their time to strike perhaps while the iron is hot. Todd, we know that in these legal cases, the venue where the case is filed can often have a huge uh, impact on the discussions that happen. Where was this particular lawsuit filed?
6: Actually, Mike, this is actually a petition filed with the EPA, and so we're not actually in in a court just yet. Um, But chances are, usually when these petitions are filed, it depends on whether um, EPA actually answers it, and if they answer it, do they answer it sufficiently? According to the environmental groups, and most oftentimes we see uh, in these situations, an environmental group if they if they're not satisfied, they they will file a lawsuit or a review of of the action or inaction by the EPA. And most most often we see those fire filed in the DC uh, Circuit Court of Appeals and places like that. And so, if this does come to a legal action, which um you know it could or it could not it depends on how epa uh, responds to this um we definitely will see it in court at some point
1: okay so not court quite yet you mentioned epa has the opportunity to respond todd typically when a petition like this gets presented does it take a couple of months for the epa to generate a response or should we be expecting a response here fairly
6: shortly oh you know mike i think typically i think what we probably will see with this it's probably about 90 days um and so, you know, EPA may or may not, uh, you know, they can decide whether to grant the petition or not, or they can, they can you know, pr- they'll provide some sort of a response, and, they, and a lot of times, in fact, oftentimes, EPA rejects a petition, although, uh, you know, it depends on the administration involved and that sort of thing, but uh, certainly EPA could go either way on this, and I think um, we'll probably know something on this, I would imagine, by the first of the year, uh, maybe sooner, it just depends.
1: All right. It just depends. And as you mentioned, the EPA has discretion. We might not hear anything further from them on this particular issue, but no doubt it is helping to shape the conversation there in that administration. Folks, we've been talking to Todd Neely. He's a staff reporter over at DTN, covers a lot of different facets of the ag industry. Always appreciate his insight. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today.
6: Yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Mike.
1: And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to check in with Jim Romer of Best Weather, Inc. for an update on what to expect globally with the forecast around the world. Stick around for more AOA after this.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel.
3: Diesel that doesn't mess around. These acres you've put your life into. Your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids, and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times!
6: Hey, man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry,
3: got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant Multi-Year On-Farm Pre-Commercial Head-to-Head Comparisons, Third-Party and Research Trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons.
7: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting Well, as we take a look at Friday trade grains looking to firm up here as we head into the weekend. Good strength in the soybean complex on the back of strong product numbers again bean meal bean oil are up sharply here as we work through our Friday trade. Corn and wheat, though, are just kind of trading mixed and range bound, especially corn has kind of just been stuck in this range, chop it around once again while the wheat market. Pulling back a little bit. The U.S. dollar pulling back on Friday morning under 112, and the VIX slipping below 25 for the first time in more than seven weeks. So we're getting a little bit of a breather there. Green and OC prices started out higher, riding a wave of optimism this morning, tied to rumors that China's about to reopen their economy. Although traders also continue to keep their eyes on headlines regarding the possible extension or not of the Ukraine trade agreement. We have a USDA crop report out on Wednesday, the WASDI report. That should also add some more fundamental fodder to the trade as we also have elections coming up next week. So there's plenty to keep our eyes on as we watch this trade moving forward and race into the month of November and towards the end of 2022. But overall on the day Friday again as I mentioned beans are the star here as we see again uh, with the Chinese economy potentially reopening what could that do for increased soybean exports we have to see if China will buy beans from the US or if they'll continue to try and get many of their beans out of Brazil. The livestock trade relatively quiet on Friday. Not a whole lot happening. We're just chopping slightly lower in cattle and hogs. Cash cattle trade this week's been fairly disappointing, especially in southern feed lots. It'll be interesting to see how cattle and hogs wrap things up as we head to the weekend. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
0: Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad? Your lunch will be ready in just a minute.
5: Hey honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important
1: that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, The better care you can provide for your loved one thanks dad thank you you're there for them we're here for you find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving that's aarp.org caregiving
8: a public service announcement brought to you by aarp and the ed council
0: agriculture of america is brought to you by cenex mextron synthetic diesel engine oils oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
1: Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we have been talking for the past, oh gosh, nearly two months about the drought across the central part of the U.S., the Mississippi River going dry. We've talked about Argentina and the dryness they're seeing down there. And of course, winter is coming and Europe is curious about where they are going to get natural gas supplies for their winter weather is driving markets this year perhaps more than most other recent years so joining us for an update on how all of these things hang together is jim romer founder of best weather incorporated and jim i think the key point we've got to start with as we're talking weather is la nina is she going to be around all year or at least the remainder of this year impacting the forecast
8: Hey, Mike, great to be back on once again. Well, this is going to be the third consecutive winter of La Nina. It's only happened three times in history, back in the uh, 1955 through 1956 uh, time frame, around uh, 1999 to 2001, and also in the mid-'70s. So during all three of those scenarios, the third winter of La Nina, we did have a drought in Argentina. Right now, obviously, the grain market's really looking at the dollar, all this geopolitical stuff going on. But I think as we get into December and January, uh, we'll have much more of a weather market in in the grain market.
1: That certainly makes sense, Jim. And while we've got you on the line, of course, we love to get your perspective on these global events. And I'm thinking, let's start in South America as that planting progress continues. You mentioned that drought is still in place. How widespread is it through Argentina and into Southern Brazil?
8: Yeah, I mean, it's covering a, Pretty much about 70% of the the crop growing areas in southern Brazil and also uh, Argentina. But the soybean crop in the northern half of Brazil really is uh, getting in very well in in Brazil. We talk about this in my newsletter, uh, Weather Wealth, that we advise clients around the world. Uh, I would crop forecast updates and also market strategies. So the the concern right now is, um, at least for the market, you know, that, that Excellent planting weather, probably a huge South American soybean crop in northern Brazil. As we get into late December, January and February, I think the market focus will be much more on southern Brazil and Argentina. About half the crop could be at risk, both corn and soybeans, for some stress uh, later on this winter, of course, in South American summer.
1: And, Jim, with that stress, or I guess when that stress starts to build, what sort of timeline are you watching for, given the drought that's in place already? Will you start to see crop impacts by mid-December in Argentina?
8: Yeah, when you go back and look at history and you look at some of the strongest La Niñas, typically, you know, corn pollinates in January down in Argentina like it does in the Midwest in July and soybeans pod are uh, typically in February. So that's going to be really critical. I'll be updating my clients around the world. You know, we can have a 10 a to 20% rallying in corn and beans, particularly if the dollar doesn't continue to strengthen uh, by the late December, January, February timeframe, uh, that could be very, very important. So we'll be watching that. Also the uh, watching the wheat market and drought in the plains, very, very important right now. But we have nine lives and can recover next spring once La Niña weakens
1: you know that's a great point and i'm glad you brought up the wheat market i did want to get your thoughts here on what's happening on the other side of the globe over in australia jim it sounds like their wheat crop is dealing with ample moisture what's your take there in the southern hemisphere for that wheat production region this uh, winter
8: well this i think is the third consecutive year in a row of well above normal wheat yields in australia Um, Typically, with La Nina, you see the opposite of, you know, we have droughts in the Plains or Brazil, but you tend to have big crops in Australia. Uh, The concern right now is something called the Indian Dipole, has to do with Pacific Ocean temperatures out across India, is in a negative cool phase, kind of hard to explain this in a short period of time, but that negative Indian Dipole, combined with La Nina, is bringing a lot of flooding. So I look for the quality of the wheat harvest to go down the next few weeks or so in Australia whether that's enough to really create a bull market in wheat right now, given the outside markets and the geopolitical situation with Ukraine and Russia, I don't know. I think there's a lot of unknown outside factors right now that are affecting grains. And again, we'll be monitoring this more closely in the weeks and months to come.
1: Well, that certainly makes sense. And in the weeks and months to come, you know, we're certainly, as you mentioned, Jim, going to be still talking about this central U.S. drought, this dryness that, of course, is across much of the winter wheat country here in uh, the U.S., la nina the impact dryness across the u.s continues jim any chance for a pattern shift here with this moisture that's falling across the central part of the u.s today
8: well there's some rain in the forecast here over the next uh, week or so but nothing really to break the drought i know of course we're we're kind of at the end of a harvest here coming up from midwest corn and soybeans so the market's not really going to focus on this drought uh, in the midwest until next spring and summer my guess would be that you know Come the April through June-July time frame, I think the Midwest drought could probably ease somewhat. That would be good news, of course, for corn and soybean farmers across the Midwest. Uh, But we could have one more bull move up here this winter if the South American crops are hurt. Again, it's going to be tricky because northern Brazil is going to have a huge soybean crop. It's southern Brazil and Argentina. The market should focus on December through February. And then come spring and summer, I think we'll see some relief for Midwestern grain farmers from this current drought that we're seeing right now.
1: Okay. All right. Some relief for Midwestern grain farmers, but we've got to get into the first quarter of 2023. Jim, in the meantime, we've got a Mississippi River that needs to carry a lot of soybeans down to the ports and a lot of fertilizer back up river. What's your outlook here for the overall river levels? I understand they can be complex to forecast, but do you see us getting drier before things get better?
8: Well, there actually is some rain in the forecast right now, and uh, you know typically during La Niña, you, know, you tend to see that drought that ex- expand into the uh, southern part of the plains and also the southeast U.S. So. Uh, though there's some rain in the forecast here coming up over the next uh, few days or so, uh, there can be, could be some really serious concerns uh, this winter uh, along uh, you know, the Mississippi, something I'm definitely paying very close attention to. Uh, we've had record low river levels, uh, and I don't see that really improving you know, right now very much. A little bit of moisture, but probably by the next spring and summer, a much better situation hopefully for, the, for that area.
1: Okay. All right. It could be a long slog to get there. It's going to take us through winter. And Jim, winter is something I know you've been preparing your clients with. Thinking about natural gas here, there's been a lot of concern in Europe as the weather starts to get colder. We've seen a lot of volatility in natural gas pricing. What's your outlook here across the European continent for winter weather-wise? And how's that going to impact gas demand and pricing?
8: Yeah, so that's something I've been watching from my clients on my newsletter, Weather Wealth. once again. We were lucky enough to actually recommend shorting call options two months ago when natural gas was at $9. I uh, collected most of that premium because of the really warm fall, both in Europe and also in the United States, the market got heavily long the natural gas market, and we've had very limited demand in the last few weeks or so, one reason why natural gas prices have collapsed. New data and new research I've been looking at right now does suggest that we could have a Colder than normal mid to late November and December in the United States. I'm not quite sure about Europe right now. Obviously, with LNG exports coming back online in November and December, any cold shot in Europe would really excite the natural gas market right now. So, again, a very volatile market. I do think it will be colder than uh, maybe we previously expected for the uh, month of December. And if so, natural gas price will probably not go much below the $5 to $6 area over the next six to eight weeks.
1: And, you know, when we're thinking these these uh, getting short a market, particularly one that's as volatile as natural gas, there's always concern about the upside target if a risk were to develop. Jim, how high could that natural gas movement or that natural gas market move here, in your opinion?
8: Yeah, well, again, the way to trade natural gas, probably trade the mini-contracts, uh, which is one quarter of a, of a regular futures contract, or a trade options. It's so volatile. I've never seen a dollar and a half moves in two days of natural gas in my life like we had pretty much off and on the entire summer and fall. And, um, you know, I'm not quite sure how high prices will go because of the warming Arctic, because of what I believe personally, um, with all my professionalism and, and research, there is some effect of climate change and global warming around the world uh, and to get a real sustained cold, two, three months of consecutive months of extreme severe weather and snow cover is is pretty unlikely. If that was to happen, yeah, we could go back to 10 or $12 in natural gas. I think it's going to be a volatile winter. I don't see natural gas prices getting below 5 but I also don't see it getting above $8. Um, we, uh, so basically using what we call option strangles, selling puts and selling calls, very sophisticated, is what we advise clients to be doing here over the next two or three months.
1: All right. I want to bring our focus back to a conversation that got started over the summer, Jim, and that was the drought in China. We heard about it a lot, the Yangtze River Basin really struggling. Of course, it's kind of tough to get reputable, trustworthy data out of China. Can you give us an update on how things look in that country now weather-wise? Have they gotten the moisture they need?
8: You know, I haven't really been looking at it close enough. I think next time of month, I'll I'll, I'll take a little bit more of of a look at it. You know, there was a lot of concern that maybe the cotton and corn crop was really hurt in, in, in much of China, but really uh, about 10 to 15 percent of the corn crop got hurt, not the entire area, and um, the cotton crop also escaped from, from much of the drought damage, too. So. It was in uh, more of the rice-producing areas, some of the outlying corn areas, as I mentioned. Um, I think things have improved a little bit right now, and, uh, but I haven't uh, watched it close enough. I definitely will be looking at it more closely as we get into the spring and summer next year. as That will be very, very important. Obviously, that affects what China does as far as the import needs for many commodities.
1: It certainly does. We'll continue to watch that. And, Jim, I know you've also been tracking coffee prices here over this past volatile year. Are we going to get a break in coffee prices looking forward?
8: Well, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of people touting frost and droughts and devastation to coffee. That happened in the last, you know, year or two. Right now, things are really, really improving. This particular Nina is bringing great rain to the northern Brazil soybean growing areas, in contrast to the south, that will have problems the next few months. But it's also breaking the drought for coffee. That's one of the main reasons why coffee's broken 25%, which we're lucky enough to catch here when the market was trading around 225. We advise clients that hey, don't get caught up in this bull market. October to December is a critical time of the year for the coffee crop. they got great rains. We'd be relatively bearish that market longer term.
1: All right. Might see a little break coming for you folks drinking coffee in the morning from that inflationary price higher. Jim Romer of Best Weather, Inc. Thanks so much for joining us today.
8: Thanks, Mike. Always love it.
1: And folks... Thank you, Jim. And folks, stick around. Jeff Cooper, CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, will be back on a new proposal from the EPA to perhaps allow more E-15 sales. Stick around.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
9: Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back.
4: You are a genius.
9: Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceretirement.org now. That's aceretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had
4: a stroke.
1: This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Patty Urich, commodity broker for CHS, shares why it's vital for farmers to have a marketing plan. Patty, dry weather in certain parts of the country could impact the crop outlook. How does this affect the way growers should think about their marketing plans?
9: Well, typically, a marketing plan encompasses several crop years. We know Mother Nature throws us a curveball, too hot and dry, too cold and wet, or just right. Build your marketing plan to that just right, but be ready to adjust it and make sure it's flexible if necessary.
1: Patty, why is it necessary to have a crop marketing plan in the first place?
9: A marketing plan is necessary to help you reach your goals. However, a plan is nothing if it's not executed. This is where a consultant can come in and help to execute your plan.
1: Follow through is key, but coming up with a marketing plan can be overwhelming for a lot of growers. What's your advice to farmers just getting started?
9: A marketing plan can and should be simple, but most importantly, it needs to be customized to your individual operation. It should be understood by the farmer and rancher and agreed upon between you and
1: your consultant. Where can farmers go for help in creating that marketing plan?
9: I have a couple suggestions. First of all, and most importantly, you need to work with someone you trust. They need to become part of your team and work on your behalf. I like to keep it local if you can. Local people know your basis levels. They know your logistics. They know what your weather patterns have been. So they can kind of help you with your yield expectations. Also, your consultant has to be available. Communication is the key to making a good marketing plan and, once again, executing that plan.
1: Folks, we've been talking to Patty Urich, commodity broker at CHS. Patty, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, channel products in the field, how'd they do?
4: Well, because the farmers have faced a variety of conditions across the region this season, you know, some growers were able to get in the field early, others experienced a delayed planting season, and of course, throughout the season, moisture was either abundant, fair, or scarce. But despite these various conditions, um, channel corn and soybean products have performed very well. From the high-yielding acre to the stressed acre with limited rainfall, we have been very pleased with our solid performance. We have a very exciting lineup, and we've got great genetics and great breeding to, to back that up.
1: That was Channel Technical Agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how Channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield yields.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
1: Well, as we talked earlier in the show with Todd Neely, we're hearing ethanol come back into the news in a big way, both the conversations over the small refinery exemption waivers and the idea of allowing E15 year-round rather than limiting its sale in the summer months. Well, there was an article out yesterday in Reuters saying that the EPA is considering some limited year-round E15 sales. Joining me to discuss this idea is Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to join us today.
10: Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning.
1: Let's talk about this idea from the EPA. The the claim is that uh, perhaps states who have requested an exemption from uh, the waiver for not allowing E-15 sales over the summer would be allowed, but just in those states. Jeff, what's your take from the ethanol industry's perspective?
10: Well, there is a, a provision in the Clean Air Act that allows governors to petition EPA and and ask EPA to make certain changes to the regulations that would allow those states uh, to sell or retailers in those states anyway to sell E15 year-round and so last April uh, we did see eight states request that you know send a petition into EPA uh, requesting that action Um, we were supposed to hear something back from EPA within 90 days of that letter being submitted by the governors We hadn't heard anything and still haven't heard anything official from EPA, uh, but we are now hearing um, some rumors at least that once we get past the election next week, uh, EPA is likely to say something about this request from these governors and uh, hopefully get this all uh, figured out before next summer so at least in these eight or nine states uh, we could sell E15 throughout the summer months.
1: Well, and Jeff, from the perspective of the industry, would this be a win? It would be great for uh, consumers in those eight states to have the option and the choice of cheaper ethanol there at the pump. But does it cut down in the ability to push for nationwide E-15 sales next summer?
10: Well, we're going to continue to push for nationwide uh, sales of E-15, of course. That's that's one of our top priorities. Uh, we continue to look for for pathways to do that. Uh, we think there's a, a good chance that there's going to be legislation introduced uh, maybe even in the lame duck session uh, to try and get uh, a year-round, nationwide kind of federal solution uh, in place for next summer. Um, and, and even if something doesn't get done uh, before the end of this year legislatively, we know in the new Congress we're going to have uh, champions on the Hill that are pushing for that as well. Um, so we, you know, th- those efforts are going to continue. Uh, but we think, at the very least, uh, at least these eight states, these nine states, will have the ability to sell E15 year-round. Ah, uh, to their consumers, and and if we have to go one state at a time, or or a handful of states at a time, we'll continue to push that option as well.
1: That's a great point, Jeff. And when we think about the impact on the ethanol industry, these eight states that have requested this uh, this exemption, they are the largest ethanol-consuming states, aren't they?
10: uh... yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, Minnesota, uh, South Dakota. Uh, you know, states that that. Uh, are home to the ethanol industry, where most of our ethanol plants are. Uh, These states also happen to be home to about two-thirds or almost 70% of the stations that are already selling E15 today. Uh, So part of this is, is just an effort to ensure that the investments that have already been made uh, by retailers in those states, you know that those investments are protected, and, and that consumers in those states who are used to using E15 and they've grown comfortable with the fuel, that they're able to continue accessing that fuel year-round. I mean, we saw this last summer. Uh, E15 priced typically 25, 30, sometimes 40 cents, sometimes more than that, uh, below E10. And I tell you what, when 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 a driver gets used to pulling up and fueling up with E15. Uh, they're going to be very angry if that option is not available to them next summer. So we really applaud these states for taking the step, the proactive step, uh, to try and protect their markets uh, you know, here in the Midwest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see that blue hose hanging there at the fuel pump, and it'd be great to be able to access it year-round. Jeff, you know, the refinery industry already kind of coming out against this proposed rumor idea, and they're saying uh-huh. that supply chain challenges would make it too difficult. You work with retailers across the sector. Would they be able to secure their E15 as needed if this were allowed?
10: Oh, they absolutely would, and this is just more the same Malarkey from the refiners. We wouldn't be in this situation today, where eight or nine states are—you are, know, have to feel like they have to go off and do their own thing. We wouldn't be in this situation if refiners hadn't sued EPA two years ago. We—we we had, as you recall, Mike, we had a solution uh, for year-round E15 and it applied nationwide, and everybody was happy and everything was going great until the refiners sued EPA and the court overturned. Uh, that year-round E15 waiver. And so now we're back in the position of looking for ways uh, to negotiate that barrier. Uh, and so it's it's pretty ironic for the refiners to now be coming out and squawking about this as well.
1: It certainly is. And Jeff, you know, thinking ahead, November is going to be a busy month for the industry. We're expecting those RVOs on November 16th. Jeff, is the EPA going to get us them on the deadline?
10: Well, there's there's... Uh, always a constant rumor mill on, on when we should expect to see the RVO proposal. There is a consent decree, a court order, deadline of November 16th, uh, so we're certainly uh, expecting that we will see that proposal uh, by that date, if not a few days sooner. Again, you know, the election next Tuesday is kind of what's holding everything up, and once we get that behind us, we, we hope that this logjam of, of things at EPA finally breaks loose and we start to see some of this. That's a great point. And
1: with the expectation of the RVOs on the 16th, Jeff, what is the industry expecting? What does RFA expect to see when those numbers come out?
10: Well, all the, all the signals we've gotten from EPA have been positive. Um, you know, we have expressed uh, our position and our priorities to EPA. We believe that the 2023 uh, requirements for renewable fuels and, and you know 2024 and 2025, for that matter, need to continue growing demand for renewable fuels and growing the volumes required by refiners, uh, and we do expect to see a, a growth proposal from EPA when it comes to requirements for renewable fuel blending moving forward. Um, you know, we're going to be taking a close look at everything in this in this package. We expect it to be, um, you know, the, probably several hundred pages of material to look at, but we are pretty optimistic about uh, where this is headed.
1: All right, hopefully some wind at the back of the ethanol industry. We'll be watching for the EPA's ruling on whether or not those eight states can sell E15 year-round here after the election. Jeff Cooper, President CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, thanks for joining us today.
10: All right, thanks Thanks again, Mike.
1: And folks, do be sure to tune in next time. Darren Newsom will be on the program We'll be taking a look at these volatile markets as the fall continues to move along.
0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
3: These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable now and for generations to come.
9: Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com.